The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage Christian Fellowship. You're a rowdy crowd this morning. Mitch, you got us all fired up. Thank you. It was an awesome time of worship uh, together this morning. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors, and we are super glad that you're worshiping with us today. As we do each and every week, we want to welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. I know we have people that are out in the overflow, and every week we have a whole bunch of people that are tuning in online, and we're really glad that we can gather together, some of us in person, some of us virtually. We can gather to, 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 to preach from the Word of God, to hear from God, to sit under the authority of God's Word, and, and not just tickle our brains, but we're here to worship. We're here to encounter a God who is not dead, but a God who is alive and at work in our midst. And we're here to, to hear from Him and respond to Him in obedience that He would be glorified in this place and not us. Amen? Really glad that you're here for that. We are in the Gospel of Mark. And if you brought a Bible today, I would encourage you to open up to, to Gospel of Mark or flip there on your phone. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. We began this series oh, uh, back in the early part of September. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, taking a few breaks along the way, but we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time. And as we have studied this and looked at this, this rich biblical text, man, it's, it's just so full of stuff that just moves your hearts and opens your eyes to who Jesus is. Today we're going to look at verses 13 through 22, just 10 verses. I'll let you turn there. I'm going to read that, and then we'll, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Beginning in verse 13. Is talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old and worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Today what I want to do before we jump into the sermon is I want to kind of give you an overview of kind of where we're going to go because I think having the end in sight is important when we begin. There's three things I want you to see today. As we're looking at Jesus, the friend of sinners, the first thing I want you to see in the first couple of verses is that, is that Jesus, the friend of sinners, came for sinners. That's expressly why he came. The second thing I'm hoping that you see, and we're going to get into this, is that Jesus, the friend of sinners, celebrates with his own. And then lastly, and I think most significantly, is that Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. And if you were to say, Paul, what is your sermon in a bottle? I would say it is this. 
Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. That's it. It's the last point of the sermon, and I think that's where the sermon is heading. I think we need to see everything else in this text through that lens. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I'm so thankful for the opportunity you give us week in and week out to gather together as the body of Christ. God, I'm thankful for the saints that are in this room today, God, and they're here to encounter you, to to hear from you, God, to to hear from you through the preaching of your word, God, to respond in obedience. And so God, we, we give you free reign. God, we ask today by the power of your spirit that you would be moving in this place and God, that you would bring affirmation where there needs to be affirmation and God, would you bring conviction where there needs to bring conviction and confession and repentance where there needs to be confession and repentance and God, as mindful as I am of the saints that are gathered here today to to worship you, God, I'm mindful of the seeker among us. Those here in this place today who have not trusted in you, God, they're here, they're investigating, they're seeking, God, would you meet them in an unmistakable and powerful way. Open their eyes. Draw them to yourself that they might confess you as as Lord. God, we give you this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a friend. His name was Pal. He was an immigrant. His family were among immigrants, and his wife was among immigrants as well, and he was a part of my church, and I really liked Pal. His wife, Pena, was amazing, this faithful, sweet-natured, godly woman. And Pal talked about having a Christian faith, but there wasn't much fruit in Pal's life. He was the father of, of two very, very small girls. His youngest daughter was four months old. They were a young, happy, married couple. And I saw Pal, he, he shared with me the story of being raised in a traditional home where, the, where shamanism was the family religion uh, from, uh, from the Hmong culture from which he came. And so for him, this idea of, of, of Christianity was new, and he sort of had this, this transfer of, of kind of this understanding of a religion, and he kind of placed it over Christianity, but it what, didn't it was, it was, there was not a lot of life to Pau's faith, if I'm honest. Pena, yes, but not so much Pau. And they attended my church, and they were sweet, and I got to know them, and they challenged me. And, and then I remember when Pena gave a call to the church. I can't remember if she called me directly or my wife, because she volunteered in my wife's ministry. And, and Pau was very sick. And he had been fishing and had, had been exposed to some uh, blastomycosis, which is a fungal infection, and it had gotten in his lungs. And he was fighting for his life. And so we run down to the local hospitals. It was called St. Luke's in the city in which we lived. And, and we got to meet with Pena. And her husband had been put on in a drug-induced coma because he was fighting for his life. Didn't know if he was going to live. In fact, it didn't look like he was going to live. And it was really dire and really desperate. And I remember sitting down with Pena. And she loved Jesus so much. And she was talking about Pau's parents who were there and present. And they wanted to bring in their shaman to come in and call on the ancestors, the dead that had gone before Pau, to, to summon them to bring healing into Pau's life. And, and Pena's like, no way. No, like if my husband is going to be healed, it's going to be through the living God, not through dead ancestors. It's going to be in and through the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to have anything else. And so me and a couple of the elders and pastors at our church, we were blessed with the opportunity to go in a couple of different occasions and pray over Pau, anoint him with oil, pray the power and the life of Jesus and the healing power of Jesus over Pau. And, and you guessed it, miraculously, I mean absolutely miraculously, after like a month being on a ventilator and, and being in an induced coma, Pau slowly pulled out of his, his, his coma and he began to talk about a living faith. He began to talk about how in the midst of that dark place he met the living God. And Pau began to talk very openly about who Jesus was in the, the idea of a shaman or the idea of a dead religion was no longer on his lips. Jesus was no longer this inanimate object, uh, the center of a, of a dead religion that, that Pau had just transferred his belief system to. Pau knew that Jesus was active and alive and he was on the move. And, and it was a miraculous that he healed Pau physically, but a far more miraculous healing was the spiritual healing. The opening of the eyes, the coming to faith that we saw in Pau's life. 
Jesus befriended Powell at his worst, confronted him in his dead religion, and made him alive. And he brought transformation and continues to bring transformation into Powell's life. When I think of his story, I'm reminded of the text that we're teaching today. I'm reminded that Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. There's a lot of dead religion in the world. I don't need to convince you of that. There's even those who denounce religion in general. They do so in the name of their own religion. They don't want to talk about the fact that they have a religious belief because they see their religious belief is non-belief, but it's still religion. The dead religions of the world take many names. There's the dead religion of like Hinduism and Islam, Mormonism and Buddhism. I could go on with all the world religions and cults that are out there. There's the dead religion of humanism and secularism and atheism and nationalism. In Wisconsin, there's the dead religion of Green Bay Packer football. There's all of these dead religions that exist out there. I learned when I was a pastor in, in Wisconsin, just don't schedule a service when the Packers are playing because no one will be there. The unbelieving world looks at Christianity and they think that's just another of these dead religions. It's just another world religion, just another dead religion built on the teachings and on the graves of dead men, but our God is not in a grave. Jesus is alive. And heck, I think, I think that if I'm honest, and if we're honest, many who, who may profess to be followers of Jesus, many who are in the church, if they're honest, they see their faith at times simply as an intellectual agreement to a set of theological truths or ideas. And if you were to examine their life, and if they were honest about their faith life, practically speaking, many may say that their life is lifeless and joyless and stoic. There's not a vibrancy to their faith, effectively engaging in a dead religion, in the church. Said another way, there may be some in the church who think of Jesus as an inanimate figure at the center of a dead religion. They'd never say that out loud, but practically speaking, that's how they live out their faith. I'm tempted with that at times. There's times in my life when I find myself engaging in the intellectual aspects of my, of my faith and I'm leading a church and I'm thinking about what it means to lead and I'm working with staff and I'm thinking about how to reach the Medford for, for Jesus and sometimes I think, have I worshipped today? Have I just fallen on my knees before a living God? Bowed my face before Him in the absolute ridiculous, audacious truth that I can know Him and be known by Him? I think there's many in the church who, if they're honest, if they were to look at their, their life in faith, their life in the church, they, they might say that their religion is devoid of life, devoid of joy, devoid of celebration or transformation or growth. But how wrong we are because Jesus is alive. He's alive. And he's active. And he's on the move. And when we look at our text today, and then when we lift our eyes up from our text and we look at the world around us today, we're going to see that Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion and calls us into life. Look with me again at Mark chapter 2. As we get ready to kind of unpack verses 13 through 17 here, let me remind you how John Mark started his, his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. Right off the bat, he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the, the king. So Mark starts his, his gospel account by saying, Jesus is the king of kings, he's the Christ, and he's also the Son of God, the Lord of lords. This person who you're encountering in the pages of the scriptures, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. First chapter was filled with frenzied activity. John the Baptist preparing the way. Jesus' baptism is temptation. Calling disciples. Doing ministry. Casting out unclean spirits. Healing people. Preaching the gospel. We got into chapter 2 last week and we saw this, this one scene where this, this paralytic was lowered down on a mat in front of Jesus and he healed him in a powerful way. And We looked at the scene last Sunday if you were here and we saw different people that were in the room that day in this house in Capernaum. 
There was this crowd that was hearing the gospel. There were these friends with a healing faith who stopped at nothing to bring their friend to Jesus. There was the paralytic who, who was hurting and hopeless. We saw the Pharisees that had a hindering faith trying to get in the way of what Jesus was doing. And then we saw Jesus healing and forgiving. And the scene ended with this man forgiven and healed, prancing out of this home in Capernaum. It was an amazing scene. And that brings us to the next little section of Scripture here in verse 13. Look at the words of Jesus in verse 14 and verse 17. If you want to underline them in your journal or in your Bible, feel free. Look at the words of Jesus to Levi. He says, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And then we see Jesus' words to to the questioning religious establishment. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. If you're a note taker and you want to follow along, you saw it on the board earlier. Jesus, the friend of sinners, came for sinners. Jesus, the friend of sinners, came for sinners. In Luke 19.10, Jesus sort of gives us his, his mission statement in life. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here in Mark chapter 2, we're getting a a glimpse, a snapshot, a picture, a window into Jesus seeking and saving the lost, living out his mission. In in chapter 1, we saw Jesus call four fishermen. They they were fishing for fish, and Jesus said, follow me and I'll teach you how to fish for people. We saw Simon and Andrew and James and John. And and though the fishing profession was blue-collar, though it was maybe on a lower rung of society, it wasn't inherently sinful. These are just kind of blue-collar, average, run-of-the-mill working men. However, here in chapter 2, when Jesus calls Levi, it's way more scandalous. Because Levi was a tax collector. And we, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard teachings of how hated tax collectors were. And Jesus calls him this hated, reviled human being. Now, uh, just a little quick history on the tax collection system in the first century. Jews uh, who, who were a part of the tax collection or the tax gathering system were absolutely hated. They were known for their abuses and their exploitation and their extortion. I read this week that they could stop anyone at any time on the road, these tax collectors. They could make them unpack their bundles and they could tax whatever they wanted. And if people couldn't pay the tax on the spot, they would give them a high interest loan, further bringing them into the grip of dependence and, and kind of uh, at the beck and call of these tax collecting loan sharks. And because they were involved in such a nefarious practice, quite naturally tax collectors would have had thugs and enforcers. They were the worst of the worst. They were easily the most hated in Hebrew society I I read this week. And even as they were these trained extortionists, probably what was even more offensive than just stealing from people was the fact that they were in bed with or in cahoots with the Romans. I mean, these were Jewish people. They were watching their own family members and their own people suffer under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire, under the, the back-breaking taxation of the Roman Empire. And rather than identifying with, helping, weeping with their countrymen, they said, oh, this is an opportunity for me to get some personal gain. And so these Jewish tax collectors were seen as just an extension of the oppressive, abusive behavior of the Roman Empire. And they were hated, hated, hated for it. They were the lowest of the low. And that's where Jesus sees Levi in the middle of the most despicable and deplorable activity. Manipulating, extorting, abusing his very own people for shameful gain. In the midst of his grievous sin, they lock eyes as Jesus is walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It says that Jesus is teaching. 
Kathy, this week as we were reading this text together, she said, I just love the way we see Jesus. When he's moving, he's teaching. He's always on mission. He's always teaching. And I can just imagine Jesus walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, his disciples and others following and listening. And in the midst of this beehive of activity, Jesus looks over and he scans, and here's Levi shamefully seated behind a booth, extorting his neighbors and friends of their money, and they lock eyes. And something in that moment happens, and Jesus says to him, follow me. And in a moment, he gets up from his tax booth, walks away from his vocation, walks away from everything to follow Jesus. It's an incredible scene. And I think about how that would have been viewed by those who were observing. How scandalous. I mean, it's bad enough he's got four fishermen that are following him, but now a tax collector? It wasn't met with a lot of celebration among the religious establishment we saw in our text. And so what happens is that Levi immediately says, let's go to my house, let's have a meal together. So Jesus enters the home of a tax collector, which was scandalous enough. And who joins him? All the dirty folks who were associated with Levi, sinners and tax collectors, joined Jesus in this home. They, they were the, the people who, who hung out with, with Levi. Who's going to hang out with Levi? He's hated by his countrymen, so it wasn't going to be other nice people, other people that were esteemed socially. This is other tax collectors and enforcers and thugs and prostitutes and apostate religionists and wealthy oppressors. That's who was gathered with, with him that day. And as I struggle to imagine what's a modern day understanding of how dynamic and how intense and, and offensive this scene might have been to the, the religious establishment as they observed Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, I had a hard time finding a modern day example. But you know, as I thought about it, I, I just thought about my own life, because I'm a religionist now. I try not to be, I try to just be a guy living for Jesus, but you know, I'm a part of the church, and so you could say that I'm a religionist, and so I'm thinking, you know, what makes me angry? And I can tell you what makes me angry. I see debauchery in our pop culture and it drives me nuts. I see TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and, and Snapchat and I see what happens and I see the garbage that's streamed 24-7 into our, into our homes and into our kids and before their eyes and I hate it. I see the normalization of sin. I see the celebration of perversion. I see it happen in Hollywood. I see it in music. I see it in pop culture. I see it with influencers. And I tell you what, when I look at that, I look at it with a lot of anger. I see these people as the purveyors of filth. It's a cancer that's killing our culture. And when I see how compromised our culture is becoming, I see how sin is being propped up and celebrated in our culture. I see how righteousness is being attacked and torn down in our culture. And I look at these Hollywood types. I look at these influencers. I look at these famous people. I look at these musicians. And I see them as people who propagate perversion. And I don't like them at all. And Christian parents, you're with me in this. You know it. And as the culture slips more and more into straight-up debauchery, I then look at the table where Jesus is reclining. He's not hanging with the righteous folks. He's not hanging out with the folks that have the strong moral code. He's not sitting there with the Christian parents and the youth pastors and the Christian musicians. He's hanging out with Cardi B, Nicki Minaj, Lil Nas. He's hanging out with Shout Your Abortion Activists. He's hanging out with Michael Avenatti's perverse, corrupt lawyers of porn stars. That's who he's hanging out with. And I get why it was so offensive to the religionists of the day. And as Eli, or as Levi is being called by, by Jesus, it's a part of this larger reality of the fact that those who followed Jesus were not kind of the made-up, moral folks who modeled modesty and morality and monogamy. No, the, these were sinners, and these are who Jesus came for. They were the sexually immoral. They were the corrupt the greedy, the liars, the manipulators, and the religious establishment does not like it one bit. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And as Jesus is spending time hanging out with the undesirables and the offensive and the unrighteous and the riffraff, we see this conflict again. I said the last week that there are five conflicts or five controversies at the beginning of Mark's gospel between Jesus and the religious establishment. And at the end of Mark's gospel, when we get into the city of Jerusalem, chapter 11 and 12, there's five more controversies. They sort of bookend Mark's gospel and they bookend the ministry of Jesus. Last week we saw the first conflict when they said, who does Jesus think he is? Forgiving sins. And here's the second controversy, the second conflict. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes of the Pharisees asked this question. The irony of the wagging finger, the condemnation of these Pharisees, is that they don't see the corruption in their own hearts. It's really interesting that when we point someone, fingers at someone else, I wonder, I wonder how often I find myself pointing a condemning finger at those around me because I just don't really want to deal with the corruption of my own heart. And as I see the the condemning finger being wagged by these blinded Pharisees with their piety, I'm reminded of what Jesus said about them. They're whitewashed tombs. They're they're whitewashed on the outside, but they're rotten on the inside. And so as they point their condemning self-righteous finger, they're not realizing, as one finger points out, three more fingers are pointing back at themselves. And so Jesus says, "I, I didn't come for the righteous. They have no need for a physician. I came for those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Or as another translation puts it, Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And looking them dead in the eye, Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts the dead religionists. And he calls all who will listen to life. And how easy it can be for us. It's so easy for me to look at the unrighteous, to look at the sick, to look at the sinner in our midst and see them as the enemy. I've had this conversation with some of you lately because it's been what the Lord has been doing in my heart. Last Saturday, I was going to Ashland with my family. We were going to spend a day at the park and walk around Lithia Park and, and have a fun day with my grandson and my kids. And as we pulled into Ashland, there was a bunch of activists on the side of the road and they were holding signs. And, and as we got closer, there was maybe a couple hundred. And the signs were for, for pro-abortion. And my grandson's in the back, and, and, uh, and it's hard for me to overstate how offensive abortion is, in my mind. It's, it's so grievous and horrible. And I'm watching them, and I'm reading some of the horrible, horrible things that are written on the signs, and I kind of, if I'm honest, if I could just confess a little bit, I had hatred in my heart. I just hated them. I hate to say that, but I kind of just did. And I'm looking at these women, I'm so mad. And I'm uh, thinking about my grandson and how beautiful he is and what a blessing he's been to our family. Like, how could you ever, you know? And, uh, and as I'm doing this, and they're yelling at me and giving me the finger, um, my daughter's like, Dad, drive faster. Uh, <laughs> I'm reminded, and this might be sound controversial, I'm not trying to be uh, salacious this morning, but I'm reminded that the greatest sin in their lives is not their support of abortion. The greatest sin in their lives is unbelief. They do not know Jesus. And if I make the argument about the morality, I miss the heart. And I'm telling you, I have sat in my office over the years as a pastor with men and women who are post-abortive, and I have tremendous grace and a broken heart because I know you're here. And I've watched, as I, I, I had this moment in my mind as a friend of mine fell off the chair in my office, on the floor of my office, wailing with like a death wail because of the shame and the pain she felt being post-abortive. So I'm not, I'm not wagging a condemning finger at all. 
And so as I think about that, I've been reading a book that's been kind of shaping my thinking a little bit lately. I want to read you what the author of this book says. It's called The Gospel Comes with a Housekey by Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, an atheist. Um, she was an out lesbian academic, uh, a kind of an activist feminist in the 90s when she became a Christian. She talked about her conversion story. And now she's, she's a, she writes for Gospel Coalition and some other ministries. And can I just read an excerpt from this book? Because it, it challenged me. She said, The truly hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. They don't buy the world's bunk about this. They know that there is a difference between acceptance and approval. And they courageously accept and respect people who think differently from them. They don't worry that others will misinterpret their friendship. Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. And it defines those who are willing to suffer with others for the sake of gospel sharing and gospel living, those who care more for integrity than appearances. So let me just say to you today, as I think about this, not good, as I think about this, um, I, I know, and I was talking to Mitch about this this week as I went through this text, we're talking about those of us that, have, uh, that are Christians. We've come to faith in Christ, and so we're, we've been declared righteous by Jesus. And we know that to be true, and yet as we look in our, in our life, we recognize there is habitual sin that we can't just seem to get past. We're struggling with a sin, and we've asked for forgiveness 500 times, and on the 501st time, we seem to just feel like failures. I can't get over this. I can't get through this. Let me remind you that Jesus dines with sinners, and you have a place at the table. And in the Christian community, we need to be able willing to, to, to share the reality of our sin struggles. We have to be willing to share that with one another. It's one thing to look at the sinners in our text and see them as clearly outside the faith. It's another thing when we look at our life and we say, I should know better. What am I doing? There's a place at the table for you. The invitation to come to Jesus still stands. It's new every day. Jesus, the friend of sinners, comes to confront dead religion and call the dead to life. Look with me again at verse 18 and 20. 18, 19, and 20. Here we see another controversy. Uh, another confrontation between Jesus and the religious establishment. They, they say to him, why do John's disciples, in verse, in verse uh, 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And this is the third controversy, the second in our text. And they just want to know, like, hey, like, all the religionists today are fasting. Why are you guys just having meals and you're feasting? What's the deal? And Jesus' answer is hilarious. It basically says, now is not the time to starve yourself. It's time to party. I'm here. I'm, I'm here for a season. I, I, God in the flesh is on planet Earth. We're not starving ourselves right now. We're going we're gonna to party because we're here. And here's the second thing I would encourage you to write down. Jesus, the friend of sinners, celebrates with his own. We see here in our text, and we see that Jesus, the friend of sinners, celebrates with his own. And, and the religionists, the Pharisees, and, and the disciples of, of the Pharisees and of John, they fasted. Now, religious law, Jewish law, only mandated fasting one day a year. The, the, the actual biblical law was on the Day of Atonement. It was a national day of repentance and forgiveness. People would, would fast to kind of show their contrite posture before God. But by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the, the, the religious establishment had created all these other man-made laws, and for them, fasting was a sign of spirituality, and you were fasting twice a day on Mondays and Thursdays, and everybody fasted, and if you didn't fast, you got looked sideways at, and Jesus is saying, like, what are you doing? I read this week that the Pharisees' attitude derived from, among other things, a false assumption that true religion was solemn and joyless. In other words, it was a dead religion in the eyes of the religionists of the day. These, these Pharisees wondered, why, why isn't Jesus and his disciples fasting? 
You know, and what they would do back in that day is, we can, there's other biblical context for this, is those when they fasted, they would wear sackcloth or kind of ratty, dirty clothes. They would make themselves look unkempt. They wouldn't wash their face. They'd even, they'd even sprinkle ashes on their face, and they would contort their face so everybody knew how spiritual they were being when they were fasting. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in, in the book of Matthew when he's talking to the, the Pharisees. Uh, or he's talking, he's giving, a, he's teaching on the role of fasting in the Christian life. Because Jesus says in our text, when, when I'm gone, then Christians can fast again. But for now, when I'm here on earth, you're not going to fast. And when, when Jesus is, is kind of admonishing and teaching the church in Matthew 6, he says to the Christians, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with sad faces. For they disfigure their faces that they may be seen by men to be fasting. Most certainly, I tell you, they have received their reward, Jesus says. And so what we see here, as we see Jesus celebrating, and we've got to kind of understand the culture around weddings. He uses this metaphor of, hey, the bridegroom, when he's with the wedding guests, we're, we're not going to fast. It's a, it's a party. And in Jewish culture, wedding was a huge deal. It was like a week-long affair. It involved so many things and feasting and, and celebrating and, and gala processions and just tons of festivity. And, and, and an understanding in that day of what, what happened at weddings uh, to fast presented... Uh, to fast in the presence of the groom would have been seen as an offense. It's like, why would you fast on the, the greatest day of celebration? It's a wedding f- celebration. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying that an expression of sorrow is inappropriate to this new situation which has come in his presence. Like, we don't fast. and We don't express sorrow when the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is on planet Earth building his kingdom. And so when you begin to contrast what the, the religious establishment desired and what Jesus was modeling with his disciples, we, we see the spectacle of, look at me and my, my religious practice. I'm going to contort my face so everybody knows how spiritual I'm being. And we see these sinners that are gathered around Jesus celebrating. It's this stark contrast. And as I look at that, I just imagine this collection of fasting men with ashes on their face wanting to be seen by other men. And as they're watching all these, these uh, immoral, dirty, forgotten sinners feast with Jesus, I can imagine they're watching them eat you know, turkey or whatever, and they're just salivating. And like, wow, you get to eat all this amazing food. And it's like, yeah, it's a time for a party. And Pastor Jeremy this week said, being around Jesus was fun. It was fun to be around Jesus. And in all of this, what Jesus is doing, he's looking at these religionists and as a friend of sinner, he is confronting dead religion and he's calling people from death to life. And finally, as we get into the last three verses or last two verses of our text, we see these two metaphors that Jesus shares about a piece of cloth that is unshrunk and, and, and wineskins. And as we read it, notice the contrast between new and old, between rigidity and flexibility. I'm going to read these two verses. Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst. The skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And here's the last thing I want you to write down. And this is, this again, this is the kind of the main idea, I think, of the whole text. Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. Jesus, the friend of sinners, confronts dead religion. 
And these two metaphors uh, uh, would have been very well understood in the first century context because they knew what it was to pass clothing. They knew what a wineskin were. We don't necessarily live in an era where we pass clothing and had used wineskins. However, when I grew up in Montana, we weren't the most wealthy of families, and my mother would sew our own clothes. And you know how embarrassing it is to go to school with hand-sewn clothes and all your friends have designer jeans? Anyone else feel my pain? Did any of you guys have that happen? It was the worst. So I sort of understand the patch thing, but, but it was more uh, a context in the first century. But the, the, the common denominator between the two metaphors is this. You have, you have uh, something that is pliable and moving and, tran- and, tr- and transformative, and it's being, it's being lifted up and held up against something that is brittle and rigid and unmoving. That's what both illustrations have in common. The unshrunk cloth is active, it's transformative, it hasn't shrunk yet. And it's going to move, and, and it's not done moving. And when you put it on something that's rigid, it's going to create tears, it can't go together. And maybe the more, the more, the more vivid picture is the wineskins. And there, there are wineskins that were made out of the leather of goats. And if you have a, a fresh leather and, 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 and you were to put wine in it, those wineskins have the ability to contract and expand. And so when you put new wine in new wineskins, it's still fermenting. It's still producing gases. And so the wine produces gases as it ferments and the wineskins can expand and nothing is lost because the new wineskins can handle that. But if you take new wine that's still fermenting and still producing gases and you stick it into an old wineskin that has become rigid and unmoving and brittle, the second it begins to expand, it bursts and everything is lost. And as these religionists are standing in their dead religion, looking at Jesus with sinners and tax collectors, as they're fasting and and, and putting their spirituality on display for everybody else to see, which was not about God, by the way, because the fact they put ashes on their face meant their religious practice was all about them. And as they're standing in their, their piety and their self-righteousness and they're with condemnation in their hearts, they're looking at Jesus and these sinners feasting. Jesus is saying, you are a brittle, unmoving, hard-hearted, spiritually dead religionist. And God is doing something new. And you're going to miss it. And they hated him for it. And they begin to concoct in their hearts how to kill him. And they did. That's what's happening here. It's an incredible picture. And I think about just the contrast here between new versus old and familiar versus different and rigid versus flexible and unmoving versus moving and stagnant versus transformational and dead versus alive. And when it's placed side by side, the difference is so obvious. And I just wonder, as a Christian, as a man who's been in the church for 20 years, am I looking for the move of God in my presence? Do I really believe that Jesus is alive and active? Am I on my knees with my hands stretched out to God saying, God, move in our presence. Do what only you can do by the power of your spirit. And far be it for me to let my preference lead the way, God. You do what you need to do to make yourself known to our valley and beyond. And I thought I was there. And I had a moment like two weeks ago that, that, that convicted me. If I go back 20 years when I became a youth pastor, I was at a a church in in Wisconsin, and we had all these kids who were the kids that nobody wanted in their church. They didn't have Christian families, but we loved them, and we coached a bunch of sports, and so we had like 100 high school kids that would come to our youth group. 
And they were the kids that would smoke cigarettes on their way to our youth group, and they would skateboard. And I remember, I remember Dick Goldie, he was the head of our, our deacon board. He refused to let these kids skateboard on our property because of, our, because of liability. And I was like, bro, it's got nothing to do with liability. You just don't like the fact there's skateboarders on our property. And he would not yield on it. And I just saw him as this crotchety old man. And I thought, come on, man. Let's, God is doing something among this group of kids. How awesome would it be if all these skater kids came to know Jesus? And so I thought that's kind of where I, I still lived. And then I was walking around downtown the other day, and like four or five kids on skateboards and scooters were kind of just going up and down the sidewalk. And for whatever reason, they kept going past us and past us and past us. And I was imagining tripping them and breaking their skateboard and throwing their scooter. And like, I have become Dick Goldie. What is wrong with me? I don't want to become a crotchety old guy. I just don't. <laughs> My wife and I, when we were 20-something years old, brand new, just barely married, I mean, brand new, just kind of had both turned our face to the church. And Becky came from a staunch Lutheran background. I grew up in these little sort of dead uh, 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 rural churches in Montana. We're living in McCall, Idaho. We hear about this ministry called Young Life. They invite us to a banquet where they're going to raise money for Young Life. I make $21,000 a year. I got no money, but it's a free meal. So I go and we're at this banquet and Becky and I are watching this ministry kind of share its vision. Becky and I had just recently kind of turned our face to Jesus. I can't speak for Becky, but I can speak for myself. I had a, so much shame and sin in my life that it created such scar tissue. And I made almost all those decisions in my youth, 15 to 21. A horrible six years. And here I am, 23. I just turned my face back to Christ. I'm, I'm a teacher at a local high school. I'm trying to figure out what adult life looks like. I'm sitting at this banquet. I know they want my money, but I don't have any money. And I'm watching as they're sharing the vision of a ministry that said, we are committed to, to leaving the comforts of our home and our churches, to stepping into a world where youth live, and we're committed to learning, building relationships with those who are far from God, and through the context of shared relationship and love and hospitality, we want to share the gospel. So these kids might know that they have a God who loves them, and that they have a hope, and they don't have to live in a dead world. Becky and I, we were sitting there in our own little silos, the exact same moment God just broke our hearts. And Becky's reflecting on her childhood and her teen years, and she's thinking, oh my God, if just one teacher would have been that for me. I'm reflecting on my childhood and my teen years, and I'm thinking if one coach would have just stood up and just told me that there was something more for me, it would have changed so much. So, there'd be, there's so many scars that may not be on my heart today as a result. And I made a decision in my heart, I'm in. I'm going to do that. Becky made a decision in her heart, I'm in. I'm going to do that. And we looked at each other, we said, we're in. And so we always tell people, we got called to ministry at the exact same minute in time. And then we were still kind of stuck in our old paradigm. We were in this little old church. We were the youngest people by like 107 years. And, and, and Young Life was happening, so they invited us to go to this training in Washington Family Ranch in eastern Oregon, but it's actually, back then it was called Wild Horse Canyon. And I didn't, I'd never been to Christian camp. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never, I didn't have a youth ministry in my church growing up. Becky was confirmed in a Lutheran church, and she cheated on her test, so she wasn't much into the whole thing. And uh, we, sorry, babe. And we, we go to this camp in eastern Oregon, and we just see like 20-something college kids who are absolutely freaking in love with Jesus. They love Jesus. And they're crazy. And they're hilarious. And they're surfing. And they're doing these stupid skits that are hilarious. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to span the gap between the unbelieving and the believing. They're willing to do whatever it takes to go share Christ with kids who don't know Jesus. And it just our lives are... We, just, we, saw, we saw a new wineskin. I saw, I saw a new wineskin. I thought, oh my God, you're doing something. And by his grace, he let us be a part of it for a lot of years. And as I look at this text, that's, that's kind of the nature. As these people are watching with hatred in their hearts, Jesus is doing something new. And he's still doing something new. We're reminded that 
Jesus is not some inanimate figure at the center of some dead religion. Jesus is alive and he's active and he's on the move. The cross is bare. The tomb is empty. Christ has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit has been poured out on the church. We are filled with His Spirit to be His witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth for the glory of God. And I don't want my faith to be a cerebral faith anymore. I don't want to be a part of a dead religion. I just don't. As I look at Jesus, the friend of sinners who came for sinners, who celebrates with his own and confronts dead religion, I'm reminded that there's a day but the marriage supper of the Lamb when all who are in Christ are going to be in His presence celebrating for all eternity when every eye is going to be wiped. No more shame, no more sorrow, no more suffering. We're going to celebrate forever in eternity with Jesus. Between now and then, God has given us some work to do. I don't need to convince you that change is afoot in our world. I don't need to convince you of that. You know it. COVID has transformed our world in two years in ways none of us could have ever predicted. It's scary. I get it. Winds of change are blowing, not good winds necessarily, political winds and social winds and cultural winds and spiritual winds. The, the world has been shaken. Our comfort has been stolen. Our security has been assaulted. The church has been rocked. I'm so tired of church scandals, I'm about to puke. Deconversion stories abound. People walking away from the faith. Once sterling Christian leaders being exposed as frauds and charlatans. Now is not the time for dead religion. Jesus is not the inanimate figure at the center of some dead religion. Jesus is alive. And he is active. And he is on the move. And he invites us. How crazy! He invites us to join him in the work he's doing. We can sit on our hands or we can join him. Have you noticed that there's a shifting spiritual landscape in the Rogue Valley? Have you noticed it? Have you noticed the transition at multiple churches in the last two years? Painful. Some of it super painful. Don't want to minimize that pain. Multiple churches have new leadership. Some really painful stories locally have unfolded where we've had to deal with some real hard things. Could it be that God is rousing the church in our valley? Could it be that God is waking his church, that he is sifting away the dead religion that has kept us comfortably asleep for far too long? Could it be that God is waking his church for such a time as this? Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, confront our dead religion. Let's pray that. Call us from death to life. Wake our church. Mobilize your saints. Embolden your preachers. Advance your gospel. Mature your disciples. Empower your ministers. Send your missionaries. Build your kingdom. May that be the prayer of the church today to a world that has been shaken, to people who have lost their security, to those who suffer, to a spiritually dead land, Jesus, the friend of sinners, calls you to himself. He calls you into a living and an active and a transformative faith. He calls you onto a mission field that is littered with dead religionists. That he might use you and me to wake the sleeping, revive the dead, and bring revival to the land. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, wake your church. Wake this church. God, we're not about making a name of a man famous. We're not about exalting the name of a local church. We're not interested in that. We're interested in Jesus being exalted. We're interested in Jesus, the friend of sinners, being exalted. 
God, use your church, use the men and women in this room, as flawed as we are, God, by the power of your Spirit, embolden us individually, embolden us as a family, embolden us collectively, God, embolden the church of the Rogue Valley and beyond. God, raise your church up, wake your church up, mobilize your saints, embolden preachers to preach unabashed truth. Advance your gospel, mature your disciples, empower your ministers, send your missionaries, expand your kingdom for your glory alone, God. Have your way with us individually. Have your way with us collectively. Jesus, friend of sinners, confront us in our dead religion and call us from death to life. Amen.